You're listening to the Grassroots Church Podcast. We're a Jesus-centered community in Thunder Bay, Ontario. You can learn how to participate more by going to our website at grassroots.church. Last week was a pretty special Sunday, wasn't it? Uh, For those who weren't here, um, perhaps you are familiar with Teen Challenge. Uh, So we had a group of maybe 10 folks from Teen Challenge who sort of just sat up here and there was this like energy they they gave to this community that kind of, uh, it it sort of permeated into the rest of the congregation, I think, uh, as we were singing and worshiping. And it was a really, it was a really special time. Um, And for me, it was a reminder of sort of the importance of listening uh, to other faith communities, other folks beyond our own church walls, and kind of encountering and listening to their experience of Jesus and how Jesus is working in their lives. And uh, sometimes we lose sight of that. And sometimes we think, oh, like God's only at work here. But man, what, uh, what an awakening. And the other thing it made me realize is that we're all sick. <laughs> um, it's not just those who are struggling with addiction, but it was a real wake-up call for me. Um, and, and maybe if you're like me, you're not as quick to see that illness in us, <laughs> that tendency to, or that, that need for um, a rescuer, for a savior, um, because life is tolerable, right? We're not, um, you know, most of us aren't struggling with addictions. Most of us aren't at the end of our rope, like so many of these folks have been. And, uh, and so when, when, when God is, or when life is just sort of tolerable, when, you know, we can kind of maintain um, we can lose sight of that need for a physician, for the great physician to bring healing to us. And we can just kind of like carry on and do things as we always do. So it was a good uh, reminder last week for me, especially, and perhaps yourself as well, um, just listening to those folks, uh, especially those two um, individuals who shared their testimony and kind of the work that God is doing in their lives of listening to, or just this reminder that we all are in need of healing. Um, and so I was wondering, you know, how do we, uh, and again, referencing just the joy these folks exuded in their worship, and uh, I don't know if you chatted with them afterward or whatever, but just like the the centrality of Jesus, and there's just this like utter dependence that so many of them uh, communicated. And like, man, I cannot do this. I am so glad that God has, has you know, um, revealed himself to me through Jesus and I am being rescued. And there's this like joy, I think is the best word that they had. And I was wondering, like, how do we live into that joy, into that sort of uh, appreciation of being rescued or of being healed without having to hit rock bottom like they did, like they've done, right? Um, without being at the end of our ropes. And I actually think the answer is sort of coincidentally in the series that we're looking at right now. We're looking at a series on the disciplines. And at the heart of the spiritual disciplines, the goal, the, the desire, is that these disciplines will serve as a mirror to the condition of our own souls. As we hold them up, as we practice them, as we get into the rhythms of, of all the different things we're talking about over the next few weeks— that we are, that God is revealing to us our need for him, our inadequacies in loving him well, in loving our neighbor well, in loving ourselves well. And, uh, and so part of these disciplines, I think, is for that 
to, um, for, for us to incorporate these practices with the goal, with the intent of revealing to ourselves our own need for a savior. And so it's such a, a fitting song that we, that we ended with uh, in our worship time this morning, this need for a savior. Um, and so uh, that's the hope. That's what we're doing. We're calling this series Renewed Rhythms. And it is all about incorporating practices into our lives that for thousands of years, specifically 2,000 years, have helped Christians, have helped followers of Jesus to practice living into the way of Jesus. So that, as we said in the past few weeks, we can love God better and we can love our neighbors better. Um, and this morning, we are continuing this journey, this renewing of our rhythms, with the rhythm of incorporating scripture reading. And um, before we dive in too deep uh, into this, I, I want to give credit to the pastor John Mark Comer. Raise your hand if you've heard of this guy's name, John Mark Comer. Angela has. Angela has because I've sent her the podcast. And Rhonda has because she's my wife. Um, but if you haven't, that's fine. It's not a big deal. But uh, John Mark Comer um, is this former pastor in the very secular city of, Bridgetown, uh, of Portland, Oregon. And he was a pastor of a church called Bridgetown. Um, and he lives in Los Angeles. And anyway, last year he did a series uh, at Bridgetown called Practicing the Way, and in which he taught all these disciplines, um, and in fact, a whole bunch of other ones that we're not even going to look at. But uh, so I'm putting this on the screen because uh, if you're a keener, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to check out this podcast series. It is, it is just, it's, found, it's fantastic. You remember when we discovered Bible Project 100 years ago and everyone's like, oh, this is amazing for learning the Bible. This is sort of the equivalent for learning the disciplines, I think. <laughs> this has just been really profound to me as I've been listening through um, uh, what this guy has. This is really his heart. His heart is to create disciples, apprentices of Jesus through the practicing of these disciplines. And um, in fact, he's uh, got a website uh, a curriculum, I think, called practicingtheway.org. You can go visit that. And it centers around spiritual formation through discipleship with the spiritual habits, with these disciplines. And uh, it's completely free, which if you do the math is actually quite affordable. Um, so I, and he's got like this circle of supporters who fund it, which is great. And so he provides this resource for free. And I've been wondering and curious and, and would love your feedback um, if this is something that we should look into doing for our church community. And so I encourage you, take a look at practicingtheway.org, go through the website. There's a lot of resources, there's a lot of content there. Uh, and some of it hasn't even been published yet. Some It's just kind of in the works of all this. Um, take a look at it. And I'm wondering and, and praying about whether we want to incorporate this either in our home groups, um, because it's designed for that, or in our own, entire church community, maybe this spring or um, following the series. Um, so, I, I, anyway, so I am borrowing from uh, his, the first of his three messages on the scriptures, the specific discipline of the scriptures. Um, and I'm leaning on that because I feel he articulates so well the challenge that is before our community, before all of the church is today, as we discuss um, this ancient text that... Um, was written over the period of, I think, 3,500 years um, by 40-some different authors in three different languages, um, and how this ancient text can speak to us, 
you know, 2,000 years later in the 21st century, uh, in a world that is perhaps rightly skeptical and rightly cynical about this Bible. Or at least skeptical and cynical uh, for many of us about the way the Bible was framed for us growing up in the church and how we are to handle it and what its purpose is and what, it's, what it can do, how it's supposed to work for us. Um, so we're cynical of that, I think. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, and we're going to talk about that. But let me also say that I realize that's not everyone's situation this morning either. Um, not everyone has baggage with the Bible, and I think that's beautiful. Some of us in this community wake up every day, and we read these scriptures, and we are nourished by them, and we find joy in them. And I think that, it, for me, as your pastor, that is incredibly encouraging, and my hope is that as a community, we would all move toward that. Um, but I've also spoken with many of you, uh, over just recently, but also over the years. And I know that for every person in this room who wakes up each day and reads the scriptures with just this exuberance and this joy, there is someone in this room who has, let's say, a complicated relationship with the Bible. And I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I myself have been reading this text for some 30 years I went to college and I studied it for four years very intentionally. Uh, I've been, you know, reading on and off. Uh, I, on one level, absolutely love this book. Uh, I find life in these words. I am drawn to the person of Jesus through this text, which I think is the goal of this text for the Christian. But on any given day, I am entirely and completely perplexed and frustrated by this Bible. I'm frustrated at not just the ambiguity and sort of the lack of clarity of the text, but how that ambiguity, how that lack of clarity, how that, um, that inability to really discern what this text is about has led to just so much division, so much violence, so much Othering. And the truth is, the Bible has been weaponized over and over again throughout history for all sorts of non Jesus y evil intentions. And uh, that has led me and perhaps others in this community and our church family to have a bit of discomfort and unease with the Bible. And I think we should acknowledge that and we should recognize that. And so for those who maybe um, this morning have a complicated relationship with the Bible, I think what we're going to talk about through uh, some of the, the ideas that Mark, uh, John Mark Homer has presented, I think that can help us. And for those who wake up every day and you know, are enthusiastically opening their Bibles and are just able to, to glean from what the Spirit might have to speak to them through these, the, these texts, I think this can also speak to you as well and encourage you and uh, will help you out as well. So, to begin, uh, Comer places the modern view of the Bible on a bit of a continuum that helps articulate the challenge that's before us. So, in one sense, this is the classic sort of liberal side of the continuum and conservative side on the other. And he admits this is a bit of a simplification, it's a bit of a reductionist approach, but it, uh, I think it helps capture sort of what the, uh, 
with the challenges that's before us. Um, so on the one side, the left side, uh, he, we have sort of what's traditionally the more liberal view of the Bible. On this end, there is a strong emphasis on the Bible as literature, right? The literary component of Scripture. Um, so they would see the Bible as potentially full of errors. There's lots of contradictions in the Scriptures. Uh, there's, you know, the history does not line up with what the archaeology, was the, what like, the world history actually says, and therefore it's a, it's a flawed text. There, you can't really trust it. Um, the text really is, though, they might say, the story of people's encounter with God or how they understood that, and so it's worth our time to read it, but not read it as anything that might have application to us, more just as like literature that you would read, like Homer's Iliad or any other ancient literature that is around. Um, they would say that the Bible is a very human text, right? That would be sort of how the left, uh, and oftentimes, dare I say, the progressives, and I know there are many of us in this room who would fall in this, can think of the Bible. It's very human. Um, they would say that there are, you know, like I said, all sorts of contradictions. There are sort of weird stories that don't make sense. There are dangerous ideas in this text that, and this is true, that um, have hurt humanity over the years. Uh, that things that have not serviced the West, serviced Western uh, civilization that well. Um, things like patriarchy, things like capital punishment, things like slavery, all these things that are like, oh, these are antiquated ideas. How can we read this text? And so it becomes sort of like the text is, doesn't really have any power. It's just there. And, and Comer says this is a very understandable way of reading the Bible as a reaction to the other end of this spectrum. Because the rights perspective, the conservative perspective, is um, what Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, he calls this the golden tablets view of Scripture, right? Golden tablets being this idea like uh, that, that Moses received the tablets from God on top of Mount Sinai. You know, he just sort of used the humans as a conduit to get what he needed down onto the paper or onto the papyrus. And, uh, and then it's up to us really to just kind of go from there. And so... Um, there will be, you know, zero contradictions. Um, sorry, this, this is sort of, uh, whereas the left sees it as literature, the right sees it as scripture, as holy scripture. And there are zero contradictions. The Bible is perfect. If the history that is uh, discovered through archaeology and through, um, you know, research doesn't line up with the scriptures, then it's really the history that's wrong, not the Bible. We have to find a way to make that work. Um, and so the emphasis on the right is the divine component of the Bible. Uh, you may have grown up with this very strong view of the Bible, very high regard for the Bible as scripture. And uh, maybe it was given to you that the Bible is the manual for living, right? All you need to do is just read it and then apply it because it's God's word. Um, I remember in Bible college, uh, so this is a million years ago, but in Bible college we had an Old Testament professor and every class he would end with, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And it was 
yeah, I guess we just said the time, and thinking back now, I'm like, at the time, we were like, yeah, that makes sense, okay. Um, since then, I've come to be a little bit skeptical of that approach, um, but that's sort of the, that sort of encapsulates the perspective, right? Like, this is God's word, uh, so all you have to do is just trust it, just believe it, and, uh, you know, ignores things like interpreting and, and understanding, things like that, that's fine, that's all secondary, just believe it. Um, and so it sort of minimizes the literary or the human component of the Bible. So do you see the sort of problem with this dichotomy? Both sides have much to offer here, believe it or not, but neither side actually gets it right. The Bible is divine. We believe that at Grassroots Church. The church needs the Bible to be divine for it to have any kind of authority in our lives. Absolutely. Um, we see in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Bible is inspired. It is literally God-breathed. We trust that that is true. We don't always understand what inspiration might mean, and there's a whole other conversation about that, but we believe that in some way, shape, or form, this, these 66 books, 73 if you're Catholic, um, are inspired by God, are breathed by God. And yet, it is profoundly human, isn't it? The Bible is profoundly human. It is written within a very specific, very particular cultural context in a very specific time frame by folks who have a very clear bias and a very particular voice, a very human voice. They are writing their experience of the divine. So you cannot deny that there is a human component to that. And so, as Jesus followers, 2,000 years removed from the historical Jesus, we are tasked with the question, what posture are we to hold concerning the Bible that will lead us to follow Jesus faithfully? And this is the question we want to discuss this morning. And the interesting thing is that Jesus' world was not that different than our own. He also dealt with these two these, these ideologies, these, these, uh, these competing paradigms, uh, or this one paradigm with these competing ideologies. And uh, in his day, they were represented by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And again, I'm getting a lot of this from John Mark Comer, so I'm totally stealing this. You can talk to me after if you want. But um, Mark um, Comer says that the Sadducees would sort of be the equivalent of our liberal or our left uh, way of thinking. They were a smaller group of upper class and well-educated um, elites who were considered sort of the power brokers of their day in terms of intellectual and economic concerns. They lived uh, in sort of Jerusalem, um, and their take on Scripture in particular was very uh, laissez-faire. They're sort of they take it or leave it. They only held that the Torah was actually God's uh, Scripture. Like that was the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were the first five books of the Bible, and that was only the inspired. The rest of the Old Testament, the Sadducees were like, eh, I don't really... They, they might read it here and there, but it wasn't really important to them. And even the Torah itself was kind of like not a really a big deal. They were, the Sadducees were quick and uh, quite willing to incorporate uh, the Greco-Roman vision of the good life into their reading of the text. Okay, so in other words, they allowed sort of the culture of the day to dictate how they understood the Bible. 
Does that sound familiar? Very familiar, right? That's very much how uh, often those sort of more liberal-leaning, progressive-leaning folks are, um, they're, they're often challenged with that perspective, right? Oh, you're just accommodating the Bible to the culture of the day. So there's this interesting interaction between uh, Jesus and the Sadducees, and it's, it's kind of comical. It actually takes place in Mark chapter 12, if you want to turn there, um, verses 18 to 27. So the, the story is, just to give you the context, the Sadduce Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They, supernatural was very sort of low on the Sadducees' uh, um, radar. And so they are not believing in the resurrection. They're trying to trap Jesus using the law. And in the law, there is a rule that says that if a woman's husband dies, she is to marry her brother. Or the husband's brother, not her brother. That would be not a good law. Um, but she is to marry the husband's uh, brother. And so um, they come up with this sort of ridiculously hyper, hypothetical situation where they're like, okay, Jesus, so this guy uh, dies, but he has seven, there's six other brothers or seven brothers. And so then the first one he marries and then he dies and the second one he marries and they all die. And you might be like, well, we should talk to that woman and see if there's something going on here. Um, but the point of their little story is to trap Jesus. And, say, and so they ask the question, who in the resurrection will be the wife's husband? Who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? And this is what he says in verse uh, 23 to 27. He says, so tell us, or again, so tell us whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Ah, we got you now, Jesus, he says, they think. And Jesus replies, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses in the story of the burning bush? Long after, oops, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. And then this, you have made a serious error. Checkmate. Notice what Jesus does here. Your mistake is you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. You have made a serious mistake in how you're reading this text. In other words, stop trying to prove the Bible wrong. Stop trying to find all the faults with it. Stop trying to find all of the challenges with it that you, that you think will justify yourself, that will justify the pride that you live with. It reveals more about your heart than you even realize. What are you doing trying to get the text to do this? You're missing the bigger picture. And you, missed, you made some serious errors here, Jesus is saying. It reveals more about your own hearts than it does about what the Bible has to actually say. So that was his interaction with the Sadducees. There's no response from them. They didn't like that. But then on the other end, 
of this spectrum are the Pharisees, who uh, Comer says they were sort of the more conservative types of the day. Um, these folks read their scriptures. They memorized their scriptures. They had their kids memorize their scriptures. They studied it relentlessly. They knew it inside and out, backwards and forwards. But over time, they even added their own Scripture. They, they added their own sort of man-made laws to the law that was in there. And, and, and to this day, those laws are still practiced in uh, much of Judaism. And so they loved the Bible so much, they added more to the Bible. Um, that's how much the Pharisees loved the Scriptures. And there is this interesting interaction in John chapter 5 that, that Jesus has with the Pharisees concerning their reading of Scripture. Let's read that. This is chapter 5, John uh, verse 39 to 44, he says this to them, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. So the Pharisees are like, yeah, sweet, he's commending us because we search the scripture. He knows what we're all about. That's great. But then he continues, but the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Your approval means nothing to me because I know you don't have God's love within you. For I have come to you in my Father's name, and you have rejected me. Yet if others come in their own name, you gladly welcome them. No wonder you can't believe. For you gladly honor each other. But you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. And so Jesus begins by conceding that, hey, yeah, you're studying the scriptures diligently. Good for you. But then he immediately points out that the same scriptures they are so diligently studying are pointing to him, and yet they have missed the boat the entire time. Why? Because I know you don't have God's love within you. The Pharisees are all about honoring each other, you know, building each other up, making each other look good in the eyes of the world around them. It's all based on ego. Right? We learn the scriptures so that we look good and we have the power over those around us. And so what is being implied here by Jesus is that the point of studying scripture, like all these disciplines that we've been looking at, is to discover God's love and to have that love shape us and form us so that we can love others as God loves us. That's the point of the Bible, folks. So neither the Sadducees nor the Pharisees properly handle the scriptures. Both of them get it wrong. And the reason for the first is because they don't believe the fingerprint of God is on these scriptures at all, or it's very minimal. And the reason for the second is because they're using the scriptures to gain information in order to have power. I want to pause and look at that just for a second. Information is power. Um, the Pharisees read the scriptures for information because information is used as a means of gaining power. Think about the world that we live in today, which is the very same in this regard. We live in what's called the information age. And all of our systems of learning and of change are based on the premise that information, knowing information, is the way that will enact change, which is done when one has power. So, for instance, our educational systems, 
It feeds us information, and then we get degrees, and we get letters at the end of our name that gives us um, uh, better jobs, higher positions in society, that allows us to make decisions for society. It gives us power. Comer talks about how the Western education system and the digital age that we are in are products of, um, have trained us to read for information, not for formation. Let me say that again. We are in a world, we are saturated in a world that cares most about our gaining of information and not very concerned about formation. He references this book, uh, Shaped by the Word, by Robert Mulholland, who suggests that the goal of informational reading, this is interesting, is to cover as much ground as fast as possible and to get the data we need for our own ends, for our purposes. And so when we read a blog, or we read a tweet, or we read an article, or we read some work of journalism, or, or whatever we're reading or consuming information, it is to get as much of it as possible. It's the pursuit of gaining information. And I don't know about you, but I am a slave to this. My wife is nodding her head, absolutely. This challenges me. Um, my main form of distraction in life is to just read articles and tweets and content all day long. Um, my friends, who I interact with mostly online, uh, know this very well because I'll send them articles. Hey, you got to read this. Hey, you should check this out. Uh, you know, this, this article gives you some perspective to chew on. There's, there's some great information that we should think about or whatever. And I notice, like any form of addiction, it's never quite enough, right? Like, what's the next piece of information I can read? What's the next uh, thing I can, I can consume? Um, and so there's this lie that as I gain information, there's more power, more control that I have so that I can change myself and I can change the world around me. That's the, sort of the lie that I uh, believe. And to some degree, it is true. You can obviously change a lot through knowledge and through information, and we're not poo-pooing information. Um, but the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is the opposite of control. Comer suggests that this pursuit of information for control is literally the exact opposite of what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples, with his apprentices. Because following Jesus is all about learning to give up control, to trust Jesus in his way instead of ourselves and what we can understand. And so again, reading for information is not, of course, bad, in and of itself, it's important, it's how we survive, but in the context of discipleship under Jesus, information is not what will transform us. It's not what will change us. Which, for many of us, when it comes to our approach to how we read scripture, should challenge us to shift our, uh, our approach from reading just for information to reading for the pursuit of formation. How are we being changed as I read this text? And so the goal of Scripture, the goal of Scripture reading is to be formed by the text rather than to simply know the text. Does that make sense? We want to be formed by the text. We want this text to read us, not necessarily for us to just read the text. Uh, and there's this subtle difference between the two. When we read just for information, it's about increasing knowledge 
um, about getting as much information as possible. Whereas uh, Mulholland suggests formational reading is about quality, not quantity. And this is a big one for me. When we read for information, the, the goal is to master the text and to use it for our purposes. Whereas when we read for formation, we want to be mastered by the text to be used for God's purposes. And uh, <clears throat> to be mastered by the Spirit of Jesus through the text and to be used by God for his purposes, which at a fundamental level is to become moved into uh, being in, uh, the person of Jesus, to be formed into his likeness, which is actually why I really like this definition of Scripture. So if we're looking to understand the Scripture, this is how Comer defines it. He says this, Scripture is a library of writings that are both human and divine that together tell us a unified story that leads us to Jesus. And this is a simple definition, but it simultaneously grants the human component and the divine component of Scripture. But more than this, it gives us a purpose. It gives us a telos of why we bother with the Bible in the first place. Christians use this scripture, these Bible, the, the Bible, to point us to Jesus, to show us who Jesus is and how we are to live as an apprentice of Jesus. All of scripture for the Christian, all of scripture should point us to Jesus. That should be the goal of scripture reading. Amen? Okay, you're tracking. Good. I know this stuff gets a little bit long and boring, uh, but hopefully you're actually still engaged with this here, because this is really important for us as disciples of Jesus. Um, Brian Zahn says this, the Bible is the word of God. Notice lower, lower case W, the word of God that bears witness to the word of God, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible's for. And also he says what the Bible does infallibly. So you can get hung up in all these words like inerrant and infallible and all this stuff about the text that the Bible doesn't say in and of itself, uh, but we have uh, projected onto it. And whatever, put all that stuff aside. And what the Bible does do perfectly, infallibly, is it points us to Jesus. It points us to who Jesus is, and it allows us to discover the person of Jesus and how we can learn from him and under him. That's the goal of the Bible and why we read it. From Genesis to Revelation, the lens that Christians ought to be using in our reading of Scripture is the lens of Jesus. Not so that we can have a bunch of information stored in our heads about Jesus, but so that we can enter into a posture of wonder and awe and humility that opens the door to be spiritually formed into the likeness of Jesus himself. But okay, that sounds fairly esoteric. Sounds really kind of pie in the sky. Um, it's easy to say, Jesus, you know, Scripture points to Jesus. But what does that look like practically? In other words, how does this text read us? Right? How does it form us? What are sort of the nuts and bolts of this idea of reading the text to be formed into the uh, image of Jesus and to be conformed by the renewing of our minds, as Romans, 1, or Romans 12 says? Well, I think uh, we can look very briefly at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, their famous verse when anyone's talking about Scripture. They always go to 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. It says this, All Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, Right? 
It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the goal of it, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Note verse 17. The point of Scripture is for us to be equipped for every good work, for the work that we are called to do. And there are four ways that the text tells us that it does this. It does this through teaching us, excuse me, through rebuking us, through correcting us, and other versions say through nurturing us until we become the best version of what a human can possibly become. In other words, until we become perfectly in step with the character and the mind of Jesus, which is a lifelong pursuit. You're not going to get there today. So why do we read the Bible? We read the Bible as apprentices of Jesus to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he would do if he were us. I think I, think, I have another part here that I want to add. I didn't add up there, but... Comer continues, he says, for us as followers of Jesus, our aim isn't just to read scripture or even to know it or to agree with it, but to obey it as an act of faith in Jesus. Scripture for the Christian is a vehicle for abiding in Jesus. I like that word abiding, for how we can walk in step with Jesus. And so this week, let's start there. Let's, let's begin with the posture of, of reading the scripture to be formed, to be spiritually formed into the image and likeness of Christ. And so this is your homework for this third spiritual discipline. I want you to begin to read the Bible however frequently you can. I challenge you to do it every day, every morning, or every evening, or whenever, um, with the goal not of finding the fault with it, not of picking it apart, not of dissecting it and, um, you know, providing sort of a, a, a hermeneutic of suspicion to it or a hermeneutic of criticism, but with the intent, with the goal of being formed by it. So not with the goal of knowing it inside and out like the Pharisees, but in humility, seeing the Bible as a text, as a gift given to us. It shows us what does it mean to follow Jesus well in every area of our life, in our homes, in our schools, in the grocery aisle, in front of the computer screen, on our phones. That's why we read scripture and that's what we want to do this week. So um, we want to live and do as Jesus as if he were one of us. And so let's pursue, let's suspend the pursuit of information gathering for the time being. Let's only approach this text as a text that can form us, that can direct us into who Jesus is. That's, that's the homework this week. Um, and I think this approach can help us all at whatever point in our relationship we have with the Bible. Uh, we don't need to dissect it, but we also don't want to ignore it. Let's not impose on it anything other than the expectation that the Bible can lead us to know Jesus and to be formed by Jesus. And of course, it's not that simple, right? This, this, this is, these, these things are really easy to say. Like, oh yeah, okay, I'll start doing that. Um, but that's why we have a church family to encourage one another, to grow together, um, to, to, to struggle through this stuff 
together as, as a family, as a, as a body of believers here. So lean on each other in this. Um, and figure this stuff out together. Now, let's get really practical. So you have a, uh, this little journal thingy that I handed out uh, a couple weeks back. Uh, there's lots of them at the back. Hopefully you are vigorously writing notes on it every Sunday morning. Good. Good, I see that. Um, hopefully you are taking time throughout the week to kind of write some reflections. There's not a lot of space in this, so you might need more. Um, but I want you this week, maybe in your uh, journals or on an, another piece of paper somehow, record what your current relationship with the Bible is. What do you think of it? How do you perceive it? What's your relationship to the scriptures today? You know, how uh, do you have baggage? Be honest. Um, do you just profoundly love these words and you have absolutely no problem with all? That's wonderful. Continue that. Um, so I want you to, to begin there. I want you to just uh, start to read the Bible. And I want to direct your attention to a few resources. If you're part of our Facebook group, our uh, grassroots community network, um, I'm going to post some resources throughout the week, some videos that I think have helped me in my research for this, but I think will, and I think will help this community. Um, if you're not a part of that group, you should join it. We'll also maybe put them in the newsletter, which you can also subscribe and, and follow us on that. Um, but one fantastic resource I want to leave us with this morning is um, a, a reading schedule. And um, this I started at the beginning of Advent. Uh, it was actually, I actually shared this on Facebook already in the past. Um, but this has been, um, it's composed by a former professor of ours, actually, Michael Paul, uh, who is a pastor in Manitoba. And he put together um, a reading list for the entire year, starting in Advent, like you see. And uh, you can download it. In fact, I've gone to the trouble of printing 20 copies of it. So if you want one, you can take one and just kind of put it in your Bible. And here's how it works. Um, again, you're reading for the purpose of formation, not information. If you're reading for information, you'd be like, oh, I got to get through the Bible in a year. Right? That's, you know, we got to read as much as we can, as fast as possible, do our job, and then check it off and go. This takes a very opposite approach. This reading I have found just to be profoundly helpful. So what it does is it gives you, you're only going through the Gospels and a little bit of Isaiah. You're going through the Gospels, and it takes you all year to do this. You're reading the same passage over and over again through an entire week. And as I've done this, and, and Rhonda can, be, uh, can testify to this, I'll read it on a Monday, and something will stick out to me. I'm like, huh, interesting. I didn't think about this before. The next day I'll read it, the same passage, and it'll be something totally different that sticks out. I'm like, huh. And so all week, we're reading the same passage. So you meditate on a passage, and then you try to memorize a verse from within that passage. It's a very simple um, system, but it, uh, it removes the burden of having to get through a bunch of stuff. Because you know what? One day you might miss it. But that's okay. It's the same passage tomorrow. So you can read it again. And uh, you don't have to beat yourself up if you forget or you miss it or whatever. But it, I, I just like, I keep it in my Bible. And I just kind of open it up, and I'm like, okay, what is today? Oh, today is blah, blah, blah. And I just carry on that way. And it's been really helpful. So that's one resource. You don't have to do that. I, honestly, it's just I'm putting that out there because I know it's helped me, and it might help you as well. And I'd encourage you to do that. Um, and yeah, there's a link there you can download uh, if you want as well. Uh, and then the last thing I want to share this morning, and this is perhaps the most practical, um, is... And it really applies to all of the spiritual disciplines that we're doing. Uh, and I need to say this. We should probably say this every single week. But it is um, remove 
digital distractions. Okay? Um, put your phones away, put your screens away, just be angry about it. Um, and, and I'm saying this from first-hand experience, I am awesome, because it'll be super frustrating to start reading the Bible, and then you get a tweet, or you get a notification, or some thought pops into your head even, it doesn't have to be a notification, you're like, oh, that makes me think of something. And then all of a sudden, you're on your phone, and you're scrolling, and you're reading another article, <laughs> or you're reading a tweet feed, and, uh, and pretty soon, like, your quiet time is disappeared, you have to get on with the day, and you've missed your opportunity to spend some time with God in scripture reading. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you, and Rhonda, I know I can read your mind right now. You're saying, Stephen, Bill, this means you too. And when she says my first and last name, I know it means business. So she's, she sees that this is something I struggle with. Um, so I'm saying this publicly so that I'm held accountable as well. Um, we need to get rid of the distractions in our life that keep us from focusing on these disciplines, and scripture reading is a big one. So uh, I'm going to challenge you to do that as well. So uh, what is this? Journaling, um, reading the scriptures themselves, uh, however you like to read them, whatever, but just begin by assuming that all scripture is here to point us to Jesus and is, and is designed to help form us into the character, into the heart of Jesus himself. Uh, not just for information gathering. And then find a reading schedule that works for you. Stick to it. And lastly, and possibly the hardest one of all, remove the distractions, the digital distractions in particular from our life. That's our homework this week. That's a lot. Is that something we can commit to do as a church family? Jack says no. <laughs> I'm going to ask anyway and just encourage you. Folks, uh, music, musicians can come on up. We are going to close this morning with communion as we do every Sunday. By the way, if you want uh, a copy of this, it's back in front, come find me. I've got 20. We can make more. I can send you the link if you didn't catch that already. And, um, and you can, yeah, stick this in your Bible and you can start reading today.